It's finding people who understand your position and are willing to amplify it for others so that they can see what's going on in a way that perhaps you weren't clear enough or were too close to it yourself. Sometimes it's people who will tell you where your argument is wrong to help you strengthen it. So it's not about votes for your cause. It's more like people who will help you figure out either that your cause is just, and so here are some ways to help you get closer to what you're trying to accomplish, whether that is helping represent you to your opponent or taking it up a level, either of those can work. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. So if you've led or even just worked with people, you probably found yourself in conflict at some point. Heck, if you've ever been online or watched the news, you probably found conflict. But often in the workplace, leaders just tell folks who are in conflict just to go work it out. Often this just kind of buries the situation, causes the problem to fester, and creates a bigger issue with a more negative impact on the organization in the long term. My guest today is Liz Kislett. Liz is a management consultant and executive coach with more than 30 years of experience developing high-performing teams and workplaces. She's worked with small family-run businesses and Fortune 500 companies. And Liz's TEDx talk on why there's so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it has over 392,000 views on YouTube. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Liz. Thanks so much, Mike. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks. Well, so let's start. Let's define conflict. So let's make sure we're all on the same page. What is conflict? I don't think we'll all be on the same page, even okay. about what conflict is. That's why it's so tricky. I think conflict is really what we call it when we feel we're not getting along, don't have the same point of view, and don't like it. When it doesn't feel good, when we're afraid of it, uh, when in some way we think that we might lose. That's when we call it conflict. Otherwise, we just call it a conversation. So so like uh, Patrick Lencioni in Five Dysfunctions really talks about a kind of a healthy conflict, breeding an environment where people can push back and have conversations. But you're, when, when we're talking about conflict that's negative, it's where I'm taking this disagreement or this different view or this lack of understanding like on a personal level or I feel threatened by it or something like that. Yeah, I think it's mostly practitioners who refer to healthy conflict or people who have read consultants' books. I think most of the folks who are just working, if we can call it that, conflict is negative. The other healthy disagreements, putting of views on the table, hashing it out, um, negotiating. We have lots of other things to call it. 
if it doesn't hurt. So if I just at the end of the conversation want to punch the other person in the throat, that's conflict. <laughs> uh, probably so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I've had, I've been married for 25 years, so I know how to not do that. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's, there's conflict and, and all of that. So if, if we're going to talk about the negative conflict and I'm the leader and I've got this situation, whether it's subordinates or me and a peer or something else, and I do see that I, you know, either I or somebody else in, in, in this, and it's always the other person. It's never me. It's like, you know, uh, you know, I only have good conflict. And if, if, if I'm in conflict, somebody is disagreeing with me and they're wrong. But if we're in these circumstances where I, as a leader or, uh, you know, we find ourselves in, in this kind of more negative conflict, um, how do we how do we check ourselves and how do we begin to, to resolve it? and convert it into something more healthy. I'm so glad you asked about how do we check ourselves because that's the step that often gets missed. Mostly when you are heading into conflict or feel like a conflict is coming at you, you know it in your body. Whether or not you planned to have a disagreement, some people We've all seen this. Somebody, particularly when we were together in conference rooms, somebody would get red in their face and throat. Yeah. Okay, good. My ears turn red when I get mad. Oh. You can see it. Yeah. There's a Perfect. picture of me, even as a child, when they were taking a photo and I was, you know, I didn't look happy, but the, my ears were flaming red. Cause, and they, to this day, they, they make fun of me because, you know, it was yeah. so obvious how angry I was. It's related, you know, to when people talk about seeing red, mm -hmm. because oh, yeah. the, the blood is rushing to your head. I have a client, he taps his foot all the time, nervous energy, but when he's heading into a conflict, there's real thumping going on. We all have certain tells that are physical. Some people clench their jaw, you get a lump in your throat, your stomach turns over. We've all got them. Your body knows sometimes before you become consciously aware. And as soon as you get that kind of signal, it makes sense to just pause for a second and check what's going on and actually remind yourself that nobody is coming at you with a knife and there's no tiger behind your chair. Right. We, yeah, you know, the, we, we do that. We fall into that fight or flight mode. Uh, it seems certainly I fall into it more often than I'd like. And, uh, and that, that stepping back and saying, what I'm feeling is only an opinion. What I'm feeling is only, you know, how I'm interpreting what's going on right now. And, uh, and this physical reaction is part of that, but I'm, I don't have, you know, I, you know, there's things here I don't have control over and I got to accept those. And then there are things out that I do have control over. And one of those is how I respond and how the words I choose to use and those kinds of things. And, taking that breath. And that's great if I happen to be the person in conflict and I'm self-aware enough to realize that. Um, but as a leader, when I see people who are in conflict and maybe I do think that, you know, this person's overreacting or this person's not intentionally not hearing what this other person's saying or these, you know, whatever, how, how as a leader do I affect uh, people's ability to be self-aware or to, to check themselves like that? The leader can model and actually explain what they're doing okay. because leaders get aggravated all the time 
don't necessarily act like it. And I'm not talking about suppression. I'm not talking about when you strap yourself in so tight that you think you're not showing anything because your people always know, you know, and, and they'll mention it in the hall to each other. Don't go in right now. So the leader can certainly model and explain. The leader can also say, I notice that you're really heated up about this. This must be important to you. Take a breath, marshal your forces, and let's talk about what's going on. And that's so important because it helps set the tone, first of all, that whatever it is, I'm going to help. We're going to work on it. It's going to be okay. In your intro, Mike, when you talked about how leaders sometimes send people away to work on a conflict by themselves, it doesn't pan out. We all know this if we've been siblings. If our parents sent us away and said, figure it out, kids, whoever was stronger might pound the other one or whoever was smarter might manipulate the other one. We had our roles and we managed the same way when we were sent away to do it as whatever the situation was that sent us to our parents in the first place. When people are asking for help, give them help. That's what a responsible leader will do. So what kind of, so let's start, let's start going through that process because uh, in your TEDx talk, you go through five steps of examining this, uh, you know, and, and kind of putting this conflict in, in, I guess, in context. And so that we, you know, that we see it clearly. And, and I think the first thing you said was um, determine that basically I, I'm going to put it in Mike coffee version, yeah. determine that this, that one of these parties isn't just the a-hole. You know, they're, they're, sometimes that's just the problem. This person is just a jerk and they're a bully or they're intentionally decide, you know, they're manipulating or they're deciding, you know, that I'm going to act this way because it gets what I want, but it's not, it's, they're not going to be constructive. Uh, how do you deal, what do you deal with those in, when you hit those situations? Okay. So when you hit that situation and you can identify it right off the bat, it usually means you've been there before. This person has already done something that you know about. It's on their record, even only mentally for you. That's the thing about conflict. There is always a context. There's always a background because all conflicts started out once as discussions or discussions with other people that have been passed down through the generations of managers to now have a conflict with the people who are there. And so the idea of uncovering the context is hugely important. To your point, though, if you've got somebody who's consistently a jerk, why are they still there if you're actually in charge? Either you're giving them feedback on how to improve and they're taking it. So it's worth investing in them and seeing how much more they can improve. Or at some point, you draw the line because having a bully or somebody who is consistently a jerk without significant provocation, having a person like that around is bad for the team and bad for the business. Yeah, John Amici, the uh, UK uh, 
psycho psych, psychologist who focuses on workplace stuff said your culture is defined by the worst behavior tolerated yeah. and uh and in, in my ethics and values presentations at hr conferences i talk about you know there's we'll often put up with really bad behavior from top performers we've got an amazing salesperson and he's out there killing it hitting his numbers bringing in revenue but he walks all over everybody else and create and makes and makes commitments for operations that they can't deliver. And but hey, but the, you know we get the signed PO. This guy did did his job, uh, and those guys are terrorists, right? I mean that's really what it they, it boils down to. They're they're holding the organization hostage, uh, you know, so that they can, you know, get what they want out of it. Yeah, it, in today's world though, if you preserve that guy. And let him walk over everybody else. All the good ones in the everybody else, they're going to find a place to go where that guy is not. Because they have more options now. And why would anybody put up with that? That's why I say it's really on the leader to figure out if you have someone who's consistently badly behaved. I mean, we all fly off the handle once in a while when it's been a terrible day or there's something that strikes very close to our hearts and we may get short-tempered and brusque with people. But there's a range of reasonable behavior that most people can recognize. And even that you don't want too often. It's when there's a pattern of nasty stuff, that's the leader's job to jump on right away. And, and I'm with you that we don't tolerate the bad behavior. These are our values. This is how we conduct ourselves here. Here's, how, you know, these are this is the behavior we incentivize, and this is the behavior we strongly disincentivize, and we're not going to put up with. Sometimes it's it's not so much as a willful behavior uh, as much as it's a lack of competence, either in inter, in interpersonal skills or in communication skills, or in just understanding what their role is. Um, how do you advise your clients? and how much to invest in someone when it's a competency issue? Depends on, again, the context for the competency problem. Sometimes people are just in the wrong job. This can happen um, if something in the interview process went wrong or if you're moving somebody up and you happen to have this new job available for them even though they're not perfect for it and you decide to take a chance. Are they trainable? Can you identify what the skills or behaviors are that they need to change? And can you work with them on it? And do you see that they put effort in and are willing to be consistent? Assuming all those things are there, if they still can't get there, either find another place for them internally because they're a great team player and you want to preserve them, or it isn't working and help them find a job that will be better for them. I'm not saying you have to stick with them till they're actually employed somewhere else, but provide them with the appropriate severance and outplacement and the things that are fair if you put them in the wrong job. Yeah, I've said for a long time that if somebody is the, you know, if the organization or the role hasn't changed and somebody's in the wrong, you know, they turn out to be the wrong butt in the wrong seat that's more on the company than that person. Correct. I mean, we're the one who hired them. I mean, you know, and, and and we've set them up for failure by 
you know, because coming in as an employee, you don't know what the job is. I mean, no That's matter, right. you know, how, how much it's described, you know, you don't know what the reality of the daily job is. And everybody thinks that every one of our candidates thinks they're the most qualified person for the job we've ever seen. And they don't understand why they didn't get the job to start with. But if we as employers and as, as hiring managers and leaders don't don't do a good job, that's on us. And uh, and then it's I think, like you said, it's a balance of how much do I invest in, in making this person successful? Have they you know, are, are the things that we were attractive to us and bringing that person in? Can we use them someplace else in the organization? Uh, I think that's that's kind of our responsibility to, to at least consider. And if not, let's let's free them up, free their frustrations of, you know, because I don't know any anybody who's not performing well who's happy with their job. And you know, so let's free them up to go do the right thing and, you know, find the right position and to the extent that we can support them in that. So. Exactly so. Right. An on-ramp instead of dropping them off a cliff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. On the other hand, if somebody was competent and something has shifted, find out why. Ask them about it. Maybe something has changed in their life and the job no longer serves them. Help them make a graceful exit. Maybe something has changed in the environment around them. Their job is actually the same, but their good colleague has moved on and now they're dealing with someone they're not comfortable with. There could be all kinds of reasons. It is worth digging a little to find out and to try to resolve the issue because you don't want organizational casualties if you can avoid them. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 47 and enter the keyword drama. That's D-R-A-M-A. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 10 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit, and one qualifies for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Liz Kislett. So let's say we've, we've ruled out that, okay, we don't have a bully. This isn't willful or behavior issued. And you know, both these people are these multiple people maybe who are in conflict um, are well-meaning and from their point of view are, you know, understand what they're talking about um, and, you know, and understand their roles what's the next step then you know when when everybody's right you know that kind of situation how do we how do we you know how do we begin to address that as leaders that's really well put mike because in the tedx i talk about the kind of questions you need to ask to figure out what's going on and that they are really about the work and the nature of the work and the pressures of the job because whenever there's a structural issue, you have to deal with the structure. It's not enough just to deal with the interpersonal breakdown that's happened between the people who are in conflict. But if everybody's right, 
that's when you know for sure it is on the leadership to figure it out. Because then you have to make a strategic choice about which rightness are you going to support and value and which rightness are you going to actually ask to step back because it's not our priority right now or because things have changed. And as the leader, part of your job in this kind of situation is being strong enough to know when you have to disappoint someone appropriately. And that's tough. But we can't run our workplaces like democracies either. I mean, that's, you know, we've got a vision. We've got we've got a strategic plan. Hopefully this is where we're going. And sometimes those things are in conflict. Um, So but you mentioned structural issues in the workplace. Give me an example of something that might be structural that would that would that would be a cause or, you know, a catalyst to the conflict. You raised the classic one, the sales and operations kind of conflict. Those departments usually have very different departmental missions and their compensation and reward structures are often at odds. Those are the kinds of things that underlie structural conflicts. So in the sales and ops context, salesperson is supposed to attract people, persuade people, and often is rewarded for whatever it takes to do that, which may mean promising all kinds of customization, special timing, who knows what fancy stuff. Operations, on the other hand, is generally rewarded, promoted, paid based on having things run as efficiently, as seamlessly, as consistently as possible. So those two things are naturally in conflict themselves before the people ever fight. Well, I think you've got the same thing in, in, in the HR, the large HR arena. We have recruiters whose job, they're salespeople, right? They're going to sell the organization. They're going to bring in a, you know, put a warm button in a seat and that's it. And then the rest of the HR has to deal with the, the, the you know, onboarding this person, uh, getting, you know, dealing with any, uh, you know, performance issues, dealing with the manager's frustration. And none of that blows back on those recruiters over there who are already filling the next, you know, the next 50 recs. They're just going, going, going. And HR and the hiring manager are often cleaning up the mess. Sorry to my recruiting friends. I love you all. But that's often the situation because they're not on, I think, you know, often don't have the same outcome. I mean, I think often recruiters are how many are measured by how many recs did you feel? What's your time to fill? How many how many qualified candidates did you present to this hiring manager? Uh, whereas what we really ought to be measuring over there is how many of those people were the right fit and were here in 18 months. Uh, but but your hiring managers don't want to be measured that way either. Your hiring managers want a warm body right now, too. And, the, you know, and they don't think often through what it really takes to be for someone to be successful in this role and, and how I can help this person that I'm you know sitting across the, the desk as an applicant. So you've got, you know, hiring managers who just want to fill a job, you get the work done. You've got recruiters who's filling the filling the job just to, you know, move on to the next rec. And you got HR who's or your your business you know, HR business partners over here who are screaming, OK, you know, this is all you're doing is creating more work for me on these other two sides. So so that's the kind of structure you're talking about. And part of what you've just laid out beautifully, it's the executive's role to look at the things that contribute to that conflict. And one of the things in this case is the time horizon. Uh, 
The recruiter is working on now, 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 now. Fast. The time horizon for the rest of HR is really as long as it takes. Those are so different. It is possible to say that our mission in HR is actually to hire the right people for the roles and the job, and that does get measured at some point in the future, the same way that a salesperson can be measured, evaluated, and comped based on not just what they book, but what gets billed, what doesn't get returned. You know, there, there are all kinds of gateways that we can use. The hard thing is changing them once they've been set. So that's the, that's what the leader ought to be doing then, right? I mean, whether it's department, interdepartmental or just between two people in the same, in the same work group, figuring out what, what do we really need to get out of this process or this, this conversation and understanding where each of those folks or these different departments or whatever it is, where they're coming from and aligning somehow, pointing them both towards the right outcome and right. figuring out how do we get to this outcome that we're, we're trying to achieve. And it's figuring out the trade-offs. Uh, a technique that's very helpful is zooming in and zooming out. If we could do whatever the best thing was without self-censorship, big picture, what would the best thing be? What are we getting pressured for every you know, Tuesday meeting where the different departments are laying out their quotas to be filled for numbers of employees? Okay, so we're looking at these two things. Where, does, where in the Venn diagram do we have overlap? What can we build from? Can we trade back and forth and help each other instead of taking firm positions that each of us is entitled to have completely the thing that would be best for us? And I think part of that is, you know, getting people on the same page is, uh, and then we've got a, you mentioned finding allies. What is, what does that look like when we're trying to, uh, does that just mean I need more people on my side than the other side so that we can, you know, so that we can outnumber them and just by sheer force win the argument or what is, what does it mean to find allies? Well, you said before it wasn't a democracy, so sheer numbers probably won't work. Allies in this kind of context is a little different from what we sometimes talk about now as allies in helping underserved or um, minority groups come to the fore. But the purpose is really the same. It's finding people who understand your position and are willing to amplify it for others so that they can see what's going on in a way that perhaps you weren't clear enough or were too close to it yourself. Sometimes it's people who will tell you where your argument is wrong to help you strengthen it. So it's not about votes for your cause. It's more like people who will help you figure out either that your cause is just, and so here are some ways to help you get closer to what you're trying to accomplish, whether that is helping represent you to your opponent or taking it up a level, either of those can work. Um, but they're not 
just support. When it's just support, sometimes you get those meetings after the meeting where people meet in the hall or the break room or the parking lot and rehash how terrible the other people are and how we're the only good ones and why don't we win. And if an executive knows that's happening, oh, you really need to get on the case because then it is past just a little bad habit and you're now dragging entire workforces into it. It's become us versus them. And I've been, you know, I've been on many, many boards over the years, and sometimes some of those boards have conflict, and we re- we think we've resolved the issue in the board meeting, and we leave, we're walking out the parking lot, and we see those three guys over there standing, you know, around the, this one person's car, and they're having a conversation, and they're they're shooting side glances to us, and we're shooting side glances to them, and trying not to be look each other directly in the eye, you know, and, and we know what's, we assume we know. I mean, I think right. that's always a, the danger, but we assume, you know, they may be talking about the bowling league, but we assume that, you know, we know what they're talking about over there. But, you know, I think if we can have, and I think finding an ally, once we figured out, like you said earlier, that, you know, what the big picture is, we're all on the same page and find somebody who's an ally to that, who can keep yes. bringing us all back to that conversation. Right. And, and so, Here's the outcome. Here's the desired outcome. Here's what we need to be successful and keep, you know, and you know, keep drawing us away from the personality issues and or the, the lack of under, you know, our, our, the lack of desirability, maybe of, of understanding. You know, sometimes it's just not in my interest to understand this other person, you know, in, in the short term. And so and, but keep redrawing us back to what we're supposed to be talking about and what we're supposed to be focused on. So, Right. Because if it's not in somebody's interest for too long, they may be falling into the jerk category. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of bringing it back to values. So if you take the sales and operations conflict, what's best for customers in the long run might be one way to look at both time horizon and true value. If you're looking at the HR situation, it might be what will be best for the company in the long run? How can we best serve all our stakeholders? There are always big questions that can be asked to help people think up a level. And by that, I don't just mean in the hierarchy, but bigger picture. And so sometimes we all wanna work together. We all wanna be on the same page and we agree on that where we're going. But we just, for whatever reason, we personally, you know, or it's always other people, you know, it's like, you know, it's minor surgery is surgery happening in somebody else. Right. It's uh, but, you know, if I've got some inability to, you know, if I just haven't don't have the professional experience or the, the personal experience to really manage conflict well, what, how do we teach, or what, even when you're working with your clients, especially on the executive coaching side, and somebody's struggling with that, what do you teach them? What kind of skills do you teach them? And can you really learn those skills once you're, you know, once you're a grown ass adult, it's really hard to change our behavior, right? So how do yeah. we, how do we, what do you teach them? What do you, what do, what do you suggest they start with? So I want to say it is absolutely possible to learn those skills. You may never be as smooth to someone for whom these kinds of things are actually intuitive. But in general, the reason we have conflict is because disagreement is what's intuitive. Protecting our own interests is how the brain functions. I mean, that's what, in the figurative sense, keeps us alive. Protecting what we think are our rights, 
our liberties, our privileges, and not really caring so much how that affects other people so long as we're okay. That is a very human characteristic, and we need to teach how to think about the bigger picture and the other people. So I wouldn't fault somebody if it's not their natural strength. But if they're not willing first to entertain new techniques and habits, or if they're not willing to practice, I would fault them for that. So there are a whole variety of techniques, as we talked about before. The first ones are about self-awareness and self-regulation. Because, you know, the, the saying is cooler heads prevail. When you stop being flooded with your own emotion, you can actually think better about what to do. Sometimes the best thing to do, so useful to teach people this, is when you just need a break, when you should just stop right now because the next thing you say is going to be even stupider than the last thing or more incendiary. So knowing, oh, I need some water. Oh, let's take a walk. Let's have lunch first. Any of those things, we'll come back to this in a few minutes. Then everybody's blood pressure can go down a little bit and everybody can behave better. And you've said a couple of times, it's always them. But in fact, most people know when it's partially us. And we all would rather behave better so long as we think it will help us get what we want. So saying in this organization, when we're in conflict, it's very important that we behave in certain ways. That's really useful input because it says that there's a value. It's a plus to take a step back and not just keep charging ahead. We've all known companies where the actual value was to charge ahead, trample as many people as necessary. But most of us don't want to be there. Once you have self-awareness and can self-regulate, then there are all kinds of techniques for reframing what's going on so you don't feel so much like someone else is your enemy or that they're trying to attack you. That's one kind of technique. And then another is how you actually speak about your position, your beliefs about their position, both from a logical perspective and trying to be as persuasive and non-threatening as possible. Having said that, though, there are times when it is appropriate to take a stance and make clear that you are going to stick to it because you feel that that corresponds with the organizational values, with the mission of your group, those kinds of things. Sometimes it's not right to fold and go away. And I think when we, we, when we know in our core we're right, we can still fall in the trap. I know I certainly do of, of assuming the other person's got bad intent at that point, or they're a bad person or, you know, because, you know, as soon as I'm convinced I'm really right, or I know I, you know, this is, you know, then if somebody is opposed to me, then therefore what's wrong. And, and um, how do you, how do you change that mindset? Uh, and maybe it's just a matter of asking yourself that, but how do you, you know, how do you approach those, that issue? So there are all kinds of techniques that I use. One of them that's in the TEDx is the evil logic check, which is when you really think somebody's your enemy, it's very helpful to work with 
at least a somewhat neutral third party who can ask you when you're not seeing that clearly, do you really think the other person is evil? And that question has been so useful to me as a facilitator, um, interpreter, <laughs> you know, and, and referee sometimes, because in general, just like most people aren't being a jerk, most people realize the other person's just trying to do their job. They happen to be in my way, but they're just trying to do their job. And when you paint it so darkly that they might be evil, no, I go out to happy hour with that guy after work. We're just really not happy with each other now because we need separate things. But acknowledging that explicitly then lets you start maybe not over completely, but let's just step back and find a better place. Yeah, I, I once worked with someone who, whenever someone really disagreed with them, especially if they were that other person was wrong, and you know, and was legitimately wrong, they would put them in this, and they would mark them as an idiot. And they would use that term, oh, that person's an idiot. Oh. And, and you would never get out of, I mean, once you were in the timeout box with, with this, this colleague, you were always an idiot. And, and so even those who got along with them and were productive with them, we were still walking on eggshells because we didn't want to ever want to be in the idiot box because once you're an idiot box, you don't get out and you can't, you know, it prevents a, a constructive relationship. So we, we tell ourselves, you know, stories about, about other people and, and sometimes hold on to them. What, you know, again, uh, it was, um, I think it was Marcus Aurelius who said, all of life is an opinion. And so much of what we do is we, we cast an opinion about something and hold on to it. And if it's the if it's not a constructive way of looking at that person or that relationship, it gets in our way, but it tears up the, you know, the, you know, the ability to work with somebody in, in the organization in the future. That's really, I'm sorry for that example. That's terrible. I would say, without knowing the situation, which is always dangerous, that that person was actually fairly brittle and fragile and didn't have room for other people to be right. That's really a shame because if you are so frightened that you'll be overcome by the idiots, that you wouldn't be able to hold the space, stand your ground, make your point, that you have to actually be punitive to people, that's not a good... It's, it's not a good look, you know. I, I think it's very helpful. Some of us who had ki have had kids, if you did that, you'd lose a lot of love. And once you see that, you see that it's a stupid position to take with anybody. Much better to feel that everybody could come back. We can work together again unless there's something wrong, as we said before, in which case then you sever the relationship because you're not meant to be working together. That's okay. But to be punitive and penalizing people over and over for a difference of opinion, something's not right there. Right. And that's really painful. Well, that's really all the time we have today, Liz. I'm going to include a link to uh, Liz's TEDx in, in the show notes. I think you'll find that really helpful. But thank you for joining me today, Liz. A great pleasure, Mike. And if it's helpful to your audience, there's a free ebook on my website about the oh, interpersonal good. aspects of conflict that might be useful if they're interested exactly in the things we've been talking about. Perfect. I'm going to download it and give it to my wife. Uh, so, 
But no, we'll have that in the show notes as well. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for all our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.